Our Father who is in heaven, we are very thankful for another day of life. We're thankful for your power, your majesty, and your glory. We're thankful for the Holy Scriptures that lead us to righteousness, that teach us about you and how to please you and be in fellowship with you and your son and your apostles. Bless this study, Father. Let it be to your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Last week, we began a series of studies from the book of 1 John. In fact, we're going to be studying all of John's epistles. We're going to study 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. Now, last Wednesday, we did a couple of things in our first study of these inspired epistles. First, we gave a background, some background information on, on the book of 1 John. We studied the author, the date, and the context of the book, and we also gave an overview of 1 John chapter 1. In 1 John chapter 1, we learned a few very critical things that kind of set up the context of the book. We learned that John begins right away by teaching us that Jesus did come in the flesh. Contrary to what the Gnostic teachers taught, Jesus came in flesh and blood. He was both fully God and fully man, and the apostles saw him, and they heard him, and they even touched him. We also learned that the apostles wrote their testimony about Jesus down for us to know today so that we can be in fellowship, so that we can be in fellowship with God, with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit, with them as the apostles, and with one another. The main purpose of the book of 1 John is to give us information we need to know so that we can be in fellowship with God. And if we fall out of fellowship with God, according to what John says in the last few verses of the book, because of the blood of Jesus, if we confess our sins and repent, we can regain fellowship with God. If we've been baptized for the remission of our sins, if, if we've come into contact with the blood of Jesus, according to what Paul says in Romans 6, John says here as Christians, we can regain fellowship with God if we sin, if we confess and humbly, humbly seek the Lord's forgiveness. And so that was essentially what we learned in 1 John chapter 1. Let's go ahead and jump right into 1 John 2 because there was a lot to, to consider in this study. And remember, the point of these studies is not to go into every detail for every verse. Instead, it's just to give you a general overview of what's taking place so it can help you as you go back and study these, these chapters in the future. And so in 1 John chapter 2, beginning with verse number 1, and we'll read down to verse 17. This is a lengthy read, so please hang with me. Let's listen to what the Holy Spirit has to say. He says, My little children, John says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, 
in him the love of God has been truly perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought to ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Beloved, I am writing, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been with you, who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you, children, because you know the Father. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. The world is passing away and also is lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Okay, brothers and sisters, I want to break down and kind of just give you an overview of what's going on here in these verses. Remember, chapter 1, the book began by by tackling the theme or the topic of how to maintain fellowship with Jesus Christ. The topic of maintaining fellowship with God as Christians is really the main topic of this book. In fact, remember going back to chapter 1 that John says that one of the keys to maintaining fellowship with God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ is we must walk in the light. He says we must walk in the light. The idea of walking in the light means that we must walk in the truth. We must walk according to the teachings of the gospel. We must walk in the example or the footsteps of Jesus Christ. Walking in the light is absolutely necessary to be in fellowship with God. But remember in verses 8 through 10 of chapter 1, John says that unfortunately at times we fall out of fellowship with God as Christians. Unfortunately, at times we sin as Christians, but thankfully because of the blood of Jesus Christ, if we confess our sins and repent, God will forgive us and bring us back into fellowship with him again. And so chapter 1 talks about how to maintain fellowship with God and how to regain fellowship with God if we sin as Christians. But notice how in 1 John 2 and verse number 1, this chapter begins by saying, that even though at times we fall out of fellowship with God as Christians, it is not God's will that we do that. In chapter 2, in verse number 1, John says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Notice how God doesn't want us to sin. God doesn't want us to transgress his law. God doesn't want us to fall out of fellowship with him. But when that does happen, 
from time to time in our walk as Christians, thankfully, this verse also gives us some good news. This verse tells us that even though we sin at times, and it's not God's will that we sin, we do have an advocate. We do have an advocate with the Father. We have an intercessor. We have a defender. We have a means of regaining forgiveness, and that means is Jesus Christ. He says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus Christ is our advocate to bring us back into a relationship with God when we sin as Christians, and not only is he our advocate, but John also says in verse number two that Jesus is the propitiation. He's the propitiation for our sins. The idea of Jesus being the propitiation for our sins means that Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus Christ is the one who paid the price for our sins. Jesus Christ is the one who is the one who appeased the wrath of God by dying on the cross for our sins. Jesus Christ is the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sins. In fact, John says that not only is Jesus the propitiation for our sins, but he's also the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. He's the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. This is yet another verse, ladies and gentlemen, that completely blows out of the water the doctrine of once saved, always saved, or the doctrine of Calvinism. Once saved, always saved is part of the doctrine of Calvinism. You see, the doctrine of Calvinism includes the concept of once saved, always saved, and part of that is also the idea that Jesus did not die for everybody, but he only died for those that God specifically chose to be saved. Part of Calvinism is the idea that God picks who's going to be saved and God picks who's going to be lost. Man has no choice in that regards. And Jesus only died for those that God picked beforehand to be saved. That's the doctrine of Calvinism. But notice how John in this verse completely discredits that doctrine. John says that Jesus died for everybody. He's the propitiation for the sins of the world. And if he's the propitiation for the sins of the world, that means that every person has an opportunity to be saved. Every person has an opportunity to receive the benefits of the blood of Jesus if they repent of their sins. John says that Jesus did not just die for a select few. Instead, he died for everybody because God wants everybody to be saved and everybody does have a ch an op opportunity to be saved if they submit to the gospel of Jesus. And so this verse, verse 2, discredits the doctrine of Calvinism. It tells us that Jesus died for us all and then the rest of this chapter really just talks about what we must do to maintain fellowship with him. Here in these verses, the rest of chapter 2 talks about what we must do if, if we are Christians, what we must do to remain in fellowship with Jesus and continue to receive the benefits of what he did at Calvary. In fact, John says there are at least, that there are at least three things we have to do to 
to remain and be in fellowship with God. And I'm going to put them on the slide. I'm going to give you an overview of them very quickly, and then I'll go back through them and talk about them in some detail. Here is the three things we got to do according to what John says in this chapter. And we're really looking at the verses we just read, these 17 verses. Here are three things we must do as Christians to maintain fellowship with God. First, according to what John says in verses 3 through 6, we must keep God's commandments. We must keep God's commandments. When John talks about the commandments of God there, he's not talking about the Old Testament commandments. He's not even talking about the Ten Commandments that were just given to the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. But when John talks about the commandments here, he's talking about the commandments of the New Covenant. He's talking about the commandments that have come from Jesus and have been given to spiritual Israel today, to Christians, to disciples. If we want to remain in fellowship with God, we must keep the commandments of the New Covenant. We must also love our brethren, verses 7 through 14. We must love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, and we have to make sure that we don't love the world. These are the three things John says we have to do to remain in fellowship with God. And so let's go back and look at them in some detail. Go back to verses 3 through 6. Let's talk about this idea of keeping the commandments of God. Notice in verse 3, he says, by this, we, we as, as Christians, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. You know, it is interesting how often, just how often John uses the word know throughout this text. If you study this, 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 this book carefully, you'll see that John used the word know over and over again. There are a few words that he uses repeatedly. The word fellowship is one, the word love is one, and the word know is one. In fact, the word know is used almost 30 times in this book. It is used almost 30 times in this very short book, and it seems to be used repeatedly by John because John is taking a shot, it appears, at the Gnostic teachers. Remember the word Gnostic means to know. Gnostic teachers during this time, and even today, claim to have special knowledge, to know things that others don't know when it comes to the will of God. During this time, there were men who claimed to have special knowledge from God. They claimed to know things that the apostles did not know, and the apostles were inspired men by the Holy Spirit. And John is using the word know repeatedly throughout this book to take a shot at them, to, to essentially say that he and the other apostles, they know the will of God because they are inspired by God and they saw Jesus and they experience Jesus, and they walk in the footsteps of Jesus, but these Gnostic teachers, these men who claim to know so much, they didn't know anything about, about Jesus. They didn't know anything about, about God and how to be in fellowship with God because they didn't keep God's commandments. They didn't walk in the light. They didn't abide in the truth they did not keep the word of God. John says that only those who keep the commandments of God that have been revealed by the Holy Spirit to the apostles, only those people really know God. Only those people are really in fellowship with God. Only those people walk in the light and abide in the Lord. 
In verses 3 through 6, John says that if we want to know that we know God, if we want to know right now if we're really in fellowship with God, then we must keep the commandments of God. And I just want to ask you, are you doing that? Are you keeping the commandments of God? Are you keeping the commandments that have been given to us by the apostles and, and written down in the New Testament? Are you loving your neighbor as yourself? Are you avoiding adultery and even lusting after someone who is not your spouse? Or are you avoiding covetousness and greed? Are you worshiping God in spirit and in truth? Have you even been baptized for the remission of your sins? Are you keeping the commandments of God? That is a key thing to do to be able to live your life knowing that you're in fellowship with God. But not only must we keep the commandments of God, John also says that we got to love one another. That's his point in verses 7 through 14 is if we really want to know if we're in fellowship with God, if we have a relationship with God, then we got to love each other. We have to love one another as a spiritual family. I have to love you as my brother or sister in Christ. And you got to love me as your brother in Christ. And John says that this is really not a new commandment. Verse 7, he says, Beloved, I'm not writing to you a, a writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you had from the beginning. This idea of loving each other, it's, it's not a new commandment. It's, it's, it's an old commandment. It's something that was taught under the old law, under the old Testament law of Moses, remember, one of the commandments was to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said that the law can be summed up in this way. You love God with all your heart and, and with all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength, and you also love your neighbor as yourself. God has always required his people to have love in their hearts, to love others, to love their neighbors. And then Jesus taught about this repeatedly throughout his ministry. In John, the 15th chapter, I'm going to John chapter 15. In John, the 15th chapter, and in verse number 12, Jesus said, John 15, verse 12, and it's amazing just how much John and all of his writings talk so much about love. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Remember that. Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit will remain so that whatever you ask of the father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you. This I command you, Jesus says that you love one another. This idea of loving one another. As children of God, it's, it's not really anything new. It was, it was a standard God had for his people under the old covenant. It's something that Jesus taught about repeatedly throughout his, his ministry. And so in many ways, this commandment we're talking about, it's, it's an old commandment, but... There's another aspect to it that, that kind of makes it a new commandment, John says. John says it's an old commandment in a sense, 
but it's also a new commandment in another sense. Going back to 1 John, in 1 John 1 and verse, oh, verse uh, chapter 2, I'm sorry, in verse 8, chapter 2 and verse 8, he says, after saying it's, it's not a new commandment, he says, on the other hand, I'm writing to you a new commandment, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And so there's a sense in which the commandment to love, it's an old commandment, and there's another sense in which it's a new commandment. And so what gives? How is it a new commandment in a sense? What is new about this old commandment? Well, I think Jesus gives us the answers to that in John the 13th chapter. This is when the Bible study rule of considering other passages comes into effect. If you have one passage that kind of confuses you, consider other passages in the Bible that talk about the same thing. And John also deals with this when he records the words of Jesus in John 13 and verse 34. In John 13, 34, Jesus says a new commandment. Notice that. A new commandment I give to you that you are to love one another. Now, remember, John says that that's an old commandment, but Jesus calls it a new commandment here. Why? Well, Jesus explains that you love one another even as I have loved you. That's the new aspect of it. That you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you, if you have love for one another. And so notice the new aspect of this old commandment. Notice how the new aspect of this old commandment is found in the example given by Jesus Jesus says that we ought to love one another, but not just in word, not just verbally, not just, not just by being nice to each other, but we ought to love one another as he loved us. That means that we ought to have sacrificial love to one another. We ought to have an active love to, towards one another. We ought to constantly be seeking to do good towards one another. That's the kind of love that Jesus had for us, and that's the kind of love we got to have for each other. John 15, verse 13, the gospel of John 15 and verse number 13, Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. See, Jesus had an active love a love that was seeking our good and our best interest, a love that wasn't just being nice to us or professing love, but a love that was seeking our best interest, active, doing something to benefit us in our lives, sacrificial love. Paul talks about this kind of love in 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter. 1 Corinthians 13, one of the great chapters that defines the kind of love God wants us to have. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 4, love is patient. Love is kind and it's not jealous. Love does not brag and it's not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It's not taken into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. That's the kind of love that Jesus had for us. That's the kind of love we got to have for each other. That's what John is talking about in a nutshell. 
We got to have sacrificial, active love towards one another. If we don't actively seek the best interest for one another, then we don't truly love each other. And if we don't love one another, then John says we're walking in darkness. John says we have blinded spiritual eyes. We don't truly love God. We don't truly love Jesus. We don't truly love the truth. John says we got to love each other just like Jesus loved us. We got to be willing to sacrifice for one another just like Jesus sacrificed for us. We maintain fellowship with God by keeping his commandments, by loving one another. And, and then thirdly, John says that we also have to make sure that we don't love the world. We can't love the world. John talks about that actually in verses 15 through 17. But there is something else I want to note here before we move to that. And, and that is go back to verses 12 through 14 because I just saw this in my notes and I want to make sure I don't overlook it, okay? Now, as John makes this appeal for us to love each other like Jesus loves us, notice how he appeals to three different groups there. Do you see the three different groups? Verses 12 down to verse 14. I want to submit that these three different groups that John speaks of here are talking about three different levels of spiritual maturity. He talks about little children, little children, verse 12, the little children here are not talking about little children as far as age goes, like my daughter Faith, who's only four. I think he's talking about their newly converted people, new converts, babes in Christ. I think we can be certain of that because he says these people have been forgiven for the name of uh, for the name of Jesus for Jesus sake. These are new converts. And then he talks to young men. Verse 13. The young men there may be a reference to those who are a level above the new converts. These are more seasoned people in the faith. The, these are people who are not novices. But they're more seasoned, they're stronger in the Lord. They have more biblical knowledge. They're more spiritually mature. And then he talks about the fathers. And the fathers there is probably a reference to the fully mature disciple, the very seasoned disciple, someone who's even qualified probably to be an elder or, or a deacon in the church. So he talks about the little children, the young men, and the fathers. These are the three levels of Christianity, if you stop and think about it. As Christians, we start out as babes in Christ. When we come out of the waters of baptism, we are new converts. We're infants in Christ. We're babes in Christ. And then as we continue to grow in our knowledge and in our love and our behavior, eventually we become like the young men. We're stronger. We become more seasoned. And then eventually, if we keep growing in our knowledge and growing in our love and growing in our behavior, we'll become fully mature. It doesn't mean that we won't have room to grow, but we will be very seasoned and mature in the faith, and it becomes even harder for the devil to steal us away from God. But I just want to make the point that all of these categories, it appears, at least in my view, are designed to describe the Christian walk. John is talking to Christians in general, new converts, those who are in the middle of the pack, the young men, 
those who've been Christians for, for a while and the strong in the faith and then the fully mature Christian. John is saying that for every level of the, of the Christian, for every category of Christian, if you want to maintain fellowship with Christ, you got to keep his commandments and you got to make sure you love your brethren. And then thirdly, you also got to make sure you don't love the world. You got to love the world. You can't love the world. You got to love God more than the world. What does John mean when he says the world there? When John says we should not love the world, does he mean that we can't love our family if they're not Christians? Does he mean we can't love going on a nice vacation or, or love to or have a hobby that you love? Is that what John means? No, that's not what John means. When John talks about the world here, he's not saying it's wrong to love some things in the world. Instead, in the context, he's talking about not loving the sinful pleasures of the world. The sinful pleasures and desires of the world. I think John makes that point clear when he talks about all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh. Verse 16, and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. That's not from the, not from the Father, but that's from the world. John is is talking about the sinful desires and, and pleasures of the world. In fact, if you stop and think about it, all of sin, all, all sin can fall into one of those three categories. Adultery, lying, greed, disobeying your parents, gossip, false teaching, false worship, covetousness, all of those things fall into either the category of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the boastful pride of life. In fact, you probably have heard it stated that Eve, the first woman ever created, when she sinned against God in the Garden of Eden, her sin involved all three of these things. Look over at Genesis 3 and verse number 6. When she let the, the devil deceive her into eating the, from the forbidden tree, the Bible says in Genesis 3, verse 6, when the woman Eve saw that the tree was good for food, there's the flesh, and that it was a delight to the eyes. There's the part where John talks about the lust of the eyes and that it was desirable to make one wise. That's the boastful pride of life, wanting to be like God. She took from his fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. There's all three of those things that John talks about in Genesis 3 and verse 6. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. We see those three aspects of sin all the way back in the beginning. Eve was deceived by the devil because she fell into those three traps. And John warns us that the same thing can happen to us today. We also can fall for the for the tricks of Satan. We also can fall into the trap of loving the world and the sinful pleasures of this world. We can fall into the trap of loving those things more than we even love God. And John says that's a mistake. It is a mistake to love the sinful pleasures of the world more than you love God because he says, one, the world is passing away. All this stuff we fall in love with in this world, 
It's passing away. It's passing away every single day. It is uncertain. It's all going to be burned up and destroyed when Jesus comes again. He says we also don't need to fall into this trap because if you love the world, if you love the sinful pleasures of this world, you don't have an ounce of love for God. You don't love God at all. Jesus made that point in his ministry when he said it this way, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. You can't serve God or love God and, and anything else. If you stop and think about it, if you love the world, if you love the world and you're devoted to the world, then you're not devoted to God. There's nothing wrong with enjoying things of the world that, don't, that are not contrary to God's will. There's nothing, no sin in that. But if you love the world, if you love the sinful pleasures of the world, then that's where your heart really is. Your heart is with the things of the world, and that means your heart's not really with God. You really don't love God. God's got to be at the center of our lives. John says those who love the world, they don't really love God. And they're not really in a relationship with God. They're not really devoted to God. And so how can we know if we're in fellowship with God? Well, John says, keep the commandments of God. Love your brethren and don't, don't love the world. Those are the three things John says in this text we got to do to make sure we're in fellowship with God. And I just want to ask you, are you doing those things? Are you keeping the commandments of God? Do you love your brethren? Do you really love them? Are you showing them that you love them? Are you loving them like Jesus loved you? And are you making sure that you're not loving the sinful pleasures of this world? That's verses 1 through 17. But let's conclude our study by reading these final verses, and we'll say a few comments. Verse 18, 1 John 2, 18. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists, Antichrists have appeared, from this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they're not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out. So they would be shown that they are all not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lies of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and the Father. This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. God has promised us eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and it's true and it's not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he's righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Okay, as we wrap up this study, let's look at a few things. First, notice how John in verse 18 talks about the last hour. 
He says the last hour. What is the last hour? Well, the last hour there is a reference to the last dispensation of time, the gospel age, the gospel dispensation, the dispensation of the new covenant. What we're living in right now, John says that during the last hour or the gospel age, many antichrists would appear. When people hear that language, antichrist, so often they, they freak out. They wonder, who, who is the antichrist? Who is he? Well, in order to figure this out, let's first define the word antichrist. Who are these antichrists? Well, the word antichrist just simply means someone who is anti-Jesus Christ. Someone who is against and opposed to the will of Jesus, someone who is against and opposed to the will of God the Father. That is what an antichrist is. That's what the term means. And John says that a bunch of these kinds of people were going to pop up in the last hour or in the last age. In fact, John says that many antichrists were appearing even in the first century. He says that some of these antichrists even came from among the brethren during that time. There were people who were, who were Christians, who were among the brethren, who were deceivers and hypocrites, who were really antichrists and trying to lead disciples away from Jesus. And what made these people antichrists during this time? Well, John tells us in verse number 22, he says that the antichrists during this time were people who denied the true nature of Jesus. They denied that Jesus came in the flesh. They denied his position. They denied that he was the Christ. They denied his standard for holy living in the flesh. These were the antichrists in the first century, the Gnostic teachers. They were the false teachers. They were the deceivers. They were the people who were anti and opposed and against the will of Jesus. There were antichrists in the first century. And let me just ask you, do we have antichrists in the world today? Are there people anti-Jesus in the world today? Are there people opposed to the will of Jesus today? You bet there are, my friends. You bet that there are antichrists in the world today. Someone says, well, who are the antichrists today? Well, I'll give you a few examples. Anyone who, who is, uh, is against the work of Jesus, Jesus coming into the world to die on the cross for the sins of all people, that's an antichrist. Those who adopt Calvinism and say that Jesus only died for a select few, those are antichrists. They are anti the mission of Jesus. People who deny his church and say that, that, that Jesus came and to, to make it so that we can have all these different denominations, that Jesus is okay with, with all these different kinds of denominational churches. Those are antichrists. Those are people who are antichrist, anti what Jesus taught concerning the fact that he was going to establish but one church, his church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Anyone who adopts the mentality that denominationalism is okay, they're antichrist. People who say that you can be saved by just believing in Jesus and accepting him in your heart as your personal savior. They're antichrist. 
They're anti what Jesus taught in the scriptures about salvation. In the scriptures, Jesus himself says in Mark 16 and verse 16, he who believed and is baptized shall be saved. And those who say that Jesus is not going to come back and receive his people unto himself, they're antichrist. They're anti what Jesus himself said in John 14 when he says, I've gone to prepare a place for you and I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Anyone who says that Jesus is not coming back one day, they're antichrist. They're anti what Jesus taught concerning his return. An antichrist is just simply anyone who is against and opposed to the teachings of Jesus. And John says we got, we got to be able to recognize these people. We got to be able to know these people. In fact, in verse number 20, John says that the Christians in the first century, they could recognize these antichrists very easily. John says that they knew who the Antichrists were. How did they know? Well, in verse 20, he says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. John says you know who the Antichrists are. Why? Because you have an anointing. Well, the anointing that is mentioned here, in my view, is probably a reference to the miraculous spiritual gifts that were in the church at this time. You see, in the first century, the early Christians had the ability to perform spiritual, miraculous gifts. The apostles were, were imparting miraculous gifts upon members of the church. They did that until the gospel was fully revealed. And some of these gifts included being able to supernaturally impart revelation from God, being a prophet, and being able to even supernaturally discern discern truth from error. You see, one of the benefits of the spiritual gifts in the church in the first century is brethren were able to know directly from the Holy Spirit whether or not someone was a teacher of truth or a teacher of error. The anointing here is probably a reference to miraculous spiritual gifts in the church in the first century, but not only did the brethren have miraculous gifts in the church that helped them be able to recognize false teachers, the main way in which we're able to recognize Antichrist is by just lining up what they say with, with the inspired and revealed and complete word of God. Verse 21, John says, chapter 2, verse 21, I've not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lies are the truth. Verse 21, as for you, let that abide in you what you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, so also you will abide in the Son and in the Father. Notice how John here talks about abiding in the truth, abiding in the doctrine that we have heard or that they had heard from the beginning. That's a reference to the Word of God, the gospel record, the inspired text. You see, when these Christians examined what was being taught by teachers, when they compared what a teacher taught them to what the apostles had taught them, they could easily be able to recognize who, whether or not that person was a teacher of truth. If the apostles taught that Jesus came in the flesh 
and that Jesus was both fully God and fully man, and somebody else came along and said, well, Jesus did not come in the flesh, well, the early Christians could easily be able to recognize that that person was a false teacher because what they're saying doesn't line up with what the apostles taught. That is how the early Christians, the main way in which they were able to recognize Antichrist, and I want to suggest that that's the main way we can recognize Antichrist today. The main way that we can recognize Antichrist today is all we have to do is line up or compare what someone teaches to what the apostles taught. Compare what someone teaches about baptism to what the apostles taught about baptism. Compared to what someone teaches about the one true church that Jesus established to what the apostles taught about the church. Compare what someone says about Jesus and the death of Jesus and the salvation found in Jesus to what the apostles taught about those things. Compare what someone else teaches regarding any religious matter to what the apostles taught about those matters, and then you can clearly be able to see as to whether or not that teacher is a teacher of truth or an antichrist. It's just that simple. All we got to do is compare what someone teaches to what the apostles taught, and if what someone teaches doesn't line up with what the apostles taught, we always go with what the apostles taught. We always go with what the apostles wrote down in the scriptures because they were inspired men of God, and anyone who opposes what they taught is an antichrist. And so it's just that simple. The point of this, of this last section here is very, it, it, it's, it's very simple. If we want to make sure that we're in fellowship with God, we got to abide in the truth. we got to abide in the teachings of the apostles. Only when we abide in and the teachings that have been revealed by the Holy Spirit to the apostles, only when we do that will we be able to maintain fellowship with God and His Son. You see, this last section is a warning against false teachers. And if I want to avoid false teachers deceiving me, and if you want to avoid false teachers deceiving you, and we can't put our trust in the words of men. Instead, verse 24 says, we have to abide in the truth. We have to abide in the words that we've been taught by the apostles in the sacred texts. When it came to the early Christians, when they were miraculous gifts in the church, they needed to listen to the Holy Spirit who had anointed them with that ability. They needed to listen to the Holy Spirit who had anointed them with prophets, those who had special knowledge or revelation from God and even had given them the ability to discern truth from error. They need to listen to the Holy Spirit and they also needed to practice the truth. And we need to make sure we practice the truth. Verse 29 says that those who practice righteousness, those are the true children of God. And so if we want to make sure that we are not antichrist and that we don't support antichrist, we need to study the truth Abide in the truth and practice the truth. That's what John says in those few verses. Only when we abide in the truth and practice it will we be able to have confidence and assurance when it comes to the judgment day. That's what John says in verse 28 when he says, Now little children abide in him so that when he appears, when Jesus comes back, we may have confidence 
not doubt, but confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. So this chapter is about how to maintain fellowship with God. You maintain fellowship with God by keeping his commandments, loving your brethren, don't love the sinful pleasures of the world, and make sure that you're never anti-Jesus Christ. Don't support those who are anti-Jesus Christ. Study the teachings of the apostles, abide in those teachings, and practice those teachings. If you do that, you and I will be just fine. Now, before I close the video, I want to ask you to tune in on Wednesday. It's uh, 7 o'clock is usually when we have our Bible uh, study period. Uh, but we may have the video available even sooner on our on our website or our YouTube channel. But we're going to have a special lesson this Wednesday called The Voice Crying in the Wilderness. It's going to be a study about John the Baptizer. It's going to be a study that's going to hopefully help us in our daily Bible readings that we're doing at the Monte Vista Church of Christ. We're going to pick up on 1 John 3 next Sunday, Lord willing. But this Wednesday, we'll have a special sermon about John the Baptist and why he was such an important prophet and why he was commended so highly by Jesus. And I hope that you'll tune in for that. Thank you for studying with me this morning.